On the very last day of his life on planet Earth, uh, Jesus Christ was standing before Pontius Pilate, uh, and Pilate was quizzing him, trying to find out who this guy was, what, what was going on, why are the Jews so intent on killing him. And in John chapter 18, uh, verse 36, uh, he starts saying, uh, are you a king? And Jesus says, you've said correctly that I am a king. And then beginning, and then verses 37 and 38, he says this, I was born, and this is in the message paraphrase, I was born and entered the world so that I could witness to the truth. Everyone who cares for truth, who has any feeling for truth, recognizes my voice. Pilate said, I believe sarcastically, what is truth? There's a debate in Jesus' day about the nature of truth and what truth is and is not. And uh, we think of it today, uh, our discussion about truth, something that we sometimes refer to as relativism. We think uh, that, that, that this is all new. Actually, this discussion has been going on uh, since before Christ, from uh, Plato and Aristotle right through the time of Christ and up into our own day. What is truth? A really relevant question um, by Pilate. And, you know, as a young man in my 20s, going back a number of decades now, uh, I was searching for truth. If you, if you talk to my friends or you watched my lifestyle as a, a non-Christian young man, uh, I was living like most non-Christian young men my age did. Uh, it looked like I was just having the greatest time of my life. But the truth is, uh, there was something very, very wrong inside. I was Something big was missing, and I knew it was missing. I was looking for something true, something I could really build my life on. Uh, some real reason for why I was living on planet Earth. You know, whether people agree that there's such a thing as absolute truth or not... As a pastor and as a Christian, I think everybody, whether they realize it or not, is looking for truth. Everyone is looking for truth in some form or another. And, you know, sometimes they look for it in strange places. I was in the line at the supermarket not too long ago, and I happened to notice this uh, publication. I, I had walked past these things a thousand times, but I never really uh, indulged. Uh, but I confess they got my... Three dollars, what a ripoff, isn't it? <laughs> and, and some of this stuff is absolutely astounding. Um, as a Christian, uh, this, hit, this interested me. I thought this article was kind of fascinating. It says that uh, Jesus is among us. Sightings of Christ are on the rise. Miraculous apparitions of Jesus Christ are spreading like wildfire. Baffling unbelievers and the Christian faithful alike. A Waterbury, Connecticut woman experienced a divine surprise when she returned home one morning from Mass. On her front door, a set of markings had emerged outlining the figure of Jesus Christ. She immediately got chills. That's probably because she lives in Waterbury, Connecticut. It was February. <laughs> she said... And soon, neighbors and... Oh, she, she got chills. Yeah, she says, And soon, neighbors and strangers from across the state were gathering to see the miraculous door. A week earlier, an x-ray technician in Phoenix, Arizona uh, dental clinic was stunned to see the face of Christ emerge from the image of a patient's teeth. <laughs> the man with Jesus in his mouth 
describes himself as a devout Christian, but says he's never seen Jesus in an x-ray before. A Scottish carpenter and self-described atheist, Sean Garrod, experienced divine intercession when Christ's face appeared on a piece of toast he was eating. I took it to the pub and my buddies thought it was great, he says. A friend of mine is a regular churchgoer and he thought it was divine. So says uh, the son. Here's another wonderful publication, the Weekly World News. Um, it seems that terrorists in Iraq uh, are, not a, are not just about killing humans. Angel, headline, Angel Shot Down by Iraqi Terrorists. Uh, a vicious terrorist equipped with small arms and rocket, fire, rocket launcher reportedly shot down and killed a glimmering winged angel flying missions of mercy over Baghdad. To add insult to injury, the body of the divine creature was quickly set on fire and dragged through the streets. <sighs> dragged through the streets by radicals screaming anti-American epitaphs. Messing with the United States is one thing. Messing with God Almighty is quite another, fumed a United States military source in Baghdad. Is that true? <laughs> Seriously, is that true? And here's my favorite. The mystery of the Bermuda toilet. <laughs> a mysterious toilet is responsible for the disappearance of 17 people who sat down on it and were never seen again. <laughs> It sounds impossible, but they seem to have been sucked down through the toilet seat into the very bowels of the earth, says Arthur Haig, a top investigator at POOF, the internationally respected detective agency dealing with paranormal disappearances. Although the perilous potty is being compared to the notorious Bermuda Triangle, where countless ships and planes have vanished. We call it the Bermuda Toilet, Haig says. It's like the Bermuda Triangle, only on a commode. <laughs> I've heard of people, people's lives going down the toilet, but this is ridiculous. <laughs> is that true? Why do people buy these things? Seriously. Like, do they like being lied to? Do they know that this stuff is lies and they just want to laugh like we just had? Or are they possibly thinking some of this is true? Again, people look in strange places. I would like to say this morning as we, as we look at uh, the, the veracity of Scripture that the Bible claims to be absolute truth. A concept that's not very popular in our day. But the Bible claims to be absolute truth. First of all, it claims to be written by God. You know, one of the things when I tell people the Bible is written by God, no, no, wait, it's written by human authors. Yes, it was written by human authors, but it was written by human authors under divine inspiration. The miracle of the Bible is that the human authors got to say exactly what they wanted to say, and God got to say exactly what he wanted to say. So, yes, human authors, but written under divine inspiration. In 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is God's very breath. Secondly, the Bible claims to be the handbook for life. 
Psalm 119, verse 105. Most of you know it. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I'll tell you, that's what I was looking for as a young man in his 20s who was on the outside having a blast, on the inside terrified, not knowing why I was here. I wanted something that would, that would lay down a clear path in life, that would show me the way to go in life, that would give me something to build my life on. I like to say it this way. You know, you buy a new appliance, you get a book. Uh, you buy a new car, you get a book. You become a Christian. Oh, nothing over there. You get a book. <laughs> you get a book. And it's the handbook for life. It really is. So what I want us to look at quickly this morning is... the. The absolute veracity of scripture. I was impressed, first of all, finally in my mid-20s, someone got me reading the Bible. I was impressed, first of all, that the Bible contains 66 books written by 40 different authors over a period of 1,500 years. The writers of the Bible represented 11 different occupations. Uh, For example, Paul was a tent maker, uh, Peter was a fisherman, Matthew was a tax collector, and so on. So 11 different occupations, 10 different styles or genres. Some of the Bible is poetry. Some of the Bible is history. Some of the Bible is personal letters. 11 different occupations, 10 different styles, and they wrote in three different languages. Most of the Old Testament, or the Old Testament is written largely in Hebrew. The New Testament written in Greek, but there's a smattering of Aramaic in there as well. So think about this, guys. This is, to me, this is beyond the mathematical possibilities of human existence, in spite of this tremendous diversity and this incredible span of time, again, written 66 books, 40 different authors, 1,500 years, 11 different occupations, 10 different styles, 3 different languages, not one single contradiction. I wish I had a nickel for every time somebody said, oh, but the Bible's just full of contradictions. Really? Show me one. Show me one. Are there problems? Yes. Problem passages? Yes. Things, as Peter says, that are difficult to understand? Yes. Contradictions? No. No, not a single one. And when you think again of the time period, the number of people, the diversity, the possibility of that being of human origin goes beyond reasonability in my view. So as I got more and more interested, I'm thinking to myself, well, what are other ways that the Bible can be verified? And I just want to suggest this morning for our little time together that there are three ways that the Bible needs to be verified if, again, it is absolutely true. The Bible should be historically verifiable, it should be scientifically verifiable, and it should be prophetically verifiable. First, the testimony of history. The historical reliability of the Bible is seen in an ancient people known as the Hittites. Now, this group of people, the Hittites, is referred to approximately 20 times in the Old Testament, beginning right in the book of Genesis. Probably the best known Hittite that most of you guys have heard of is Uriah the Hittite, right? In in 2 Samuel... Chapter 11 and verse 6, it says, Then David said to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. But see, critical scholars who didn't believe the Bible said, You know what? All through the Old Testament, there's this reference to these people called the Hittites, the Hittites, the Hittites. Nowhere else 
in any historical record ever found, written, archaeological, none of it, never is there a mention of this people called the Hittites except in the Bible. And it proves that the Bible is just a book of fiction. They, you know, things are just made up. It's fairy tales. They said this until, until uh, 1910. I'm sorry, 1912. Professor Hugo Winkler, an archaeologist of the University of Berlin, uh, was running an archaeological dig in what is now modern-day Turkey, uh, a site of an ancient city called Hattushesh. And they unearthed, Winkler and his crew unearthed thousands of ancient tablets. And when they were deciphered, it basically recorded the existence of a people called the Hittites. And the more, they, the more they dug and the more time went by, they came to realize that the Hittites were one of the five greatest, most influential civilizations of the ancient world. Their area encompassed virtually all of modern-day Turkey and extended all the way down into modern-day Lebanon. Uh, you can look at, uh, look at the quote. Back that up one, Sully, would you? Until uh, This is Dr. Merle Unger uh, formerly of Dallas Seminary, he says, until the amazing uh, recovery of the Hittite civilization by modern archaeology, the biblical references to this otherwise unknown people were commonly viewed with critical suspicion. That's putting it mildly. Then in 1912, Professor Hugo Winkler of Berlin discovered about 10,000 clay tablets at ancient Hattushis. The material revealed that the Hittites were not only an important people of the ancient world, but a people of an extended empire. Once again, The Bible proves true when history has no clue. And then the map, you can see uh, in our next slide here that their kingdom took up a tremendous amount of territory. So the Hittites. Secondly, the Bible is historically reliable and verifiable as seen in the man Pilate, the very man that we were just reading about that Jesus stood before on the last day of his life. Pilate also is another historical figure, very famous. Uh, even non-Christians have heard of Pontius Pilate. Uh, but there's no record of his existence outside of the Bible. And once again, critical scholars, people that don't believe the scriptures, see, here's another fairy tale, Pontius Pilate. There's no record of him even in Rome, even in Roman uh, archives. No record of mention of this man until 1961. A stone plaque was discovered at the seaboard city of Caesarea. Caesarea is right on the Mediterranean coast of Israel. Uh, in 1992, I had the great joy, uh, being a scuba diver, I had the great joy of taking part in an underwater archaeological dig at the harbor there in Caesarea. Uh, Herod the Great had built a huge uh, sort of a breakwater with huge stone columns, uh, just beautiful and ornate. And in the third century, there was an earthquake, and it all collapsed into the ocean. Uh, and I got to take part uh, in an archaeological dig, and we raised some of those columns. But in, there's also right there in that seacoast, in the Mediterranean coastal city of uh, Caesarea, there is a large Roman amphitheater. And they were, they were trying to repair that amphitheater and removing sections of it when they came across this stone. And what happened was this stone very clearly says dedicated to Tiberius, who was emperor during the lifetime of Christ. He was the Roman Caesar. Dedicated to Tiberius by Pontius Pilate, prefect of 
Judea, as clear as can be. You flip the next slide, Sully, and there's that stone. You can see Tiberius, or Tiber, you know, it's not written in English, obviously. And Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, is very clear on the stone as well. So once again, the critical scholars are left with mud on their face because the Bible's proven them wrong. They don't have a clue. The upper, another, the third historical verifiable. The historical reliability of the Bible can also be seen in the David inscription in, other, in Upper Galilee. Again, no mention of David anywhere except in the Bible. And a little more quietly, I guess, by this time, critical scholars wonder if there ever was such a thing as a guy named David. I mean, he only, he's, can't, he never heard of him except in the Bible. Until July 1st, 1993, Israeli archaeologist Avram Baran discovered a stone tablet from the 9th century B.C., and the tablet specifically mentions the house of David. What had evidently happened was Syria had invaded the northern part of Israel, Galilee, uh, and the Syrian king killed uh, Jehoram, then the king of Israel. And Jehoram was a descent, direct descendant of David, probably great, 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 great grandson of David. And the tablet uh, is this Syrian king boasting, I killed Jehoram of the house of David. So once again... Never any mention of David outside of the scriptures, but who proves to be right again? Dun, 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 the Bible. <laughs> so you would think, wouldn't you, that historians, and they are today, very reluctant to challenge uh, the historicity of the Bible. Secondly, the Bible also ought to be verifiable scientifically. It's not a science book, guys, but when it speaks to science, it ought to speak clearly and it ought to speak truth. And it does. You guys know this one. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean. Right. And science taught that the world was what, guys? Flat. 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 Yep. I love this, too, because they not only taught that the world was flat, but if the speculation was if you sailed westward, if you're coming out of the Mediterranean Sea and you sailed westward past the Rock of Gibraltar, at some point out there, you'd go right off the edge. Gone. And yet... And yet, 800 years B.C., the prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 22. And I'm going to read it first in the NIV. He, that is God, sits enthroned above the circle of the earth. Now, Eugene Peterson, in the message paraphrase, has gone a step further. He says, God sits high above the round ball of the earth. Now, to be fair, to be fair, the Hebrew word translated circle in the NIV, and that is a good translation. If you look through all of the Bible translations of that verse, you'll see that 90% of them translate that Hebrew word as circle. And there's a debate among evangelical scholars uh, and critical scholars about whether that word should be translated circle uh, or, as Dr. Henry Morris, for example, of the Institute of Christianity, Institute of Creation Research says it can be translated sphere, which has the implication of not just circle, but ball. But critical scholars, and I spent a little time on this, critical scholars may have a point that circle uh, may imply nothing more than a circle like you would draw, um, going back again to those of you who are little, remember compasses in high school where you draw a circle with a compass? Uh, in other words, a circle uh, in space may be no different than a geometric circle. It may just be flat. But even that said, 
Is Isaiah correct? So, so basically, Eugene Peterson's uh, kind of leap in the message to call it a round ball may be a leap too far, but it is a circle. And Isaiah said, 800 years before Christ, the earth is round. It's a circle. Was he correct, guys? Yeah, absolutely. And all science was saying was, it's flat like a table, and, you can, and, and if you sail too far, you go right off the edge. So again, the Bible proves to be absolutely reliable when it speaks to science. Also, when Columbus sailed, no one knew what supported the earth. I love this one. As a matter of fact, uh, Hindu teachings, the the Hindu scriptures called the Vedas, the Hindu Vedas taught uh, that the earth rested on the back of a giant turtle. (laughs) And as a matter of fact, if you actually, you can actually Google this and look it up. It's, uh, I think it's called the earth, the turtle or the earth turtle. But there's a turtle uh, and then there are elephants on the top of the turtle shell and then the earth is sitting on the elephants. But that's what they taught. Guys, you won't find any ridiculous statements like that in the Bible. Because God is the co-author. God is the ultimate author of the Bible. So the Hindu Vedas teach that the earth rests on the back of a giant turtle. And some said when he took a step, we had a, can you guess? An earthquake. Oklahoma. Yet nearly 3,000 years earlier... Job wrote this in Job 26 and verse 7. He, the Lord, hangs the earth on nothing. How did Job know that? How do you explain that if you're trying to discount the Bible? Science was busy uh, during the time of Christ and even before uh, trying to count the stars. Hipparchus, a second century B.C. Greek astronomer. Uh, Ptolemy. Uh, a second century A.D. Alexandrian astronomer, and even Kepler uh, in the seventh century, right around the time, but just before Galileo invented the telescope, all three of those guys said there are between a thousand and eleven hundred stars. They agreed. You know, I mean, some uh, Kepler said a thousand twenty. You know, uh, um, Hipparchus said a thousand ninety. But they all believed there was between a thousand and eleven hundred stars. Then the telescope comes along, 1609, 1610, and they suddenly realize, wait a minute. They suddenly realize something that the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century. Listen to what Paul said in, I'm sorry, not Paul. Uh, Listen to what Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 3 and verse 22. The host of the heavens cannot be counted. How did Jeremiah know that? 1,600 years before science knew it, Jeremiah says there's too many stars to count. You can't count them all. And today, uh, with you know, powerful ground telescopes like, like uh, Mount Palomar in California and the Hubble telescope now in outer space, we know more than ever. It's imp- there's too many. We can't even see all the stars clearly, much less try to count them. Once again, this Bible is years ahead of its time. And until the advent of the telescope, and here's where I uh, was jumping ahead to Paul. Until the advent of the telescope uh, in the 17th century, astronomers thought that all the stars were the same. Yet, in 1 Corinthians 15, 41, the Apostle Paul wrote in the first century, one star differs from another star in glory. Science says all the stars are the same. Paul says the stars are all different. 
How did he know that? How did he know that? He didn't have a telescope 1,600 years too early. So every time, the Bible is not a history book, guys, but every time it speaks to history, it's, it's right on the mark. It's not a science book. Every time it speaks to science, it's right on the mark, often hundreds or even thousands of years before it's time. Lastly, though, we ought to be able to verify, the Bible ought to be historically verifiable through prophecy. And frankly, there are a thousand, at least a thousand, historically verifiable prophecies in the Bible. Many of them have already been fulfilled completely. And I want to show you just one, one that's always fascinated me. In Ezekiel chapter 26 and 29, there's a prophecy about the city of Tyre. You can read it for yourself, but when you, when you sit down and go through chapter 26 and a small portion of chapter 29, you will find that there are six specific prophecies that Ezekiel makes in regard to the city of Tyre. Now, Tyre also is on the Mediterranean coast just north of Israel in what is today modern Lebanon. And the ancient city of Tyre, uh, the walled city, backed right up to the ocean. And when I say backed up to the ocean, uh, I mean backed up to the ocean like our church uh, backs up to, I don't know the name of that road right there, but backs up to that road, that close, right on it. Well, there are six specific prophecies. Prophecy number one, Ezekiel said that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, would destroy the city of Tyre. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar brings his armies and lays siege to the city of Tyre. Now, it's a formidable task because the city of Tyre uh, has walls that are 100 feet high and 30 feet deep, 30 feet thick. And Nebuchadnezzar and his army lay siege to Tyre, get this, for 12 years. 12 years. It takes them 12 years to break through the city of Tyre's walls. The second prophecy is that once Nebuchadnezzar breaks through the walls, he will not get a single penny of plunder. How can that be? It's going to run down the rest of them. Thirdly, it says many nations will come against Tyre. As specifically, Ezekiel says, many nations will come against Tyre like waves of the sea. Number four. It says that Tyre will, in the end, Tyre will be bare like a flat rock and all the rubble from the, from the city when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it would be thrown into the sea. Number five, Tyre will never be rebuilt ever. And number six, fishermen, it will be a place that will be so bare and flat that fishermen will dry their nets there. So here's what happens. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians lay siege to the city for 12 years. He finally breaks through. When he breaks through and gets inside the city of Tyre, there's nobody there and there's nothing of value there. Number two is fulfilled. He doesn't get one penny of plunder. What happened to everybody? Again, they're backed right up to the sea. A quarter of a mile out into the Mediterranean, there's an island, a good-sized island. And during that 12-year period... uh, The people of Tyre and the king of Tyre, they had basically moved everything out to that city, out to that island. uh, And all the valuables and all the people moved out to that. And they did it so gradually, most of it at night over a 12-year period, that Nebuchadnezzar's army never even knew it. 
Talk about be angry and be upset. Nebuchadnezzar goes back to Babylon in fury. But we've got a problem because all the rubble's laying there on the ground. Ezekiel had said that it would all be thrown into the sea. So what's going to happen here? Well, a couple of hundred years later, along comes another conqueror. Anybody want to try to guess his name? From Greek? From Greece? Alexander the Great, exactly. In 332 BC, Alexander the Great comes against the city of Tyre. And Alexander gets there and he surveys the situation. And he insists, oh, we will take it. So get what he does. He starts, he has his engineers, they start pitching all of the rubble from the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar created. They pitch all of that rubble into the Mediterranean and create a causeway all the way out to the island. And then Alexander the Great enlists just north of Tyre uh, in Lebanon is ancient Sidonia. He enlists the Sidonian Navy, Phoenician Navy, to attack Tyre from the ocean side while he brings, he's created this this causeway. Actually, go to the next side, Sully, if you would. I got this offline. Um, This particular artist calls it Alexander's Mole. I would call it Alexander's Causeway. Uh, But then Alexander creates these huge uh, battle platforms on wheels, and they're 50 feet high, and wheels them out the causeway, and his archers, they fire down relentlessly on the people in the city, while the Phoenician, the Sidonians, attack from the ocean on the other side, and Alexander conquers the island city of Tyre. And all of the prophecy is fulfilled with the possible exception that Tyre will never be rebuilt. And you know what, guys? It never has been rebuilt. And today, listen to the quote here by Philip Meyer, historian Philip Meyer. He says, The once great city of Tyre is now as bare as the top of a rock and is a place used by fishermen to dry their nets. Let me ask you guys, just a fair-minded person, skeptic or not, what are the odds that a detailed prophecy like that could be fulfilled so completely and so precisely? The only answer for me is the ultimate author of Scripture is God. John seventeen seventeen. thy word is truth. The world may not believe in truth, but if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I hope you do. I really do. Remember what Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What's our conclusion? The Bible, the conclusion is, next slide. We can trust the Bible completely, completely, utterly. And you know what? When I discovered that at age 26, when I put my faith in Christ as my Savior at age 26... It, revel- it, it changed my life completely. It's never been the same. Thank goodness. And I can tell you honestly, having, having spent a good portion of my life reading it and studying it and, and spending years in seminary studying it, the longer I read the book, the more I realize what a miracle that book is. And I trust that if you haven't discovered that, that you will. We're going to uh, come to the Lord's table now. And... There's no requirement here as far as being a member. 
as far as having signed a confession of faith or uh, whatever. The only thing that we ask is that you're a person who has genuinely put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the free gift of eternal life. Because here's, what, here's the conclusion I came to at age 26. If I can trust the Bible historically, if I can trust it scientifically, if I can trust it prophetically, then why can't I trust it to tell me how to get to heaven? Right? And, and the simple truth is, eternal life is a free gift. And, and Jesus, John 6, 47, whoever believes in me has, present tense, everlasting life. The moment you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're given the free gift of eternal life. And that's what we're going to celebrate now as we come to communion. So I trust, if you haven't believed that yet, that you, that you will consider the claims of the Bible and the claims of Jesus Christ.